Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. All right, welcome back to the Baseball America Dynasty Show. I am your host, Jeff Ponce. I am joined today by my co-host, Matt Eddy, and one of our colleagues, Carlos Colazzo, who heads our draft coverage. Welcome to the show, guys. How are you? Hi, Jeff. Thanks for uh, hosting our debut episode. What's up, Jeff? Yeah. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Pretty good. Pretty good. So this is our debut episode. Um, we wanted to start this up as we dove in a little bit more, I think, to fantasy content from what we had typically done historically. And I thought a good way to kick that off and sort of get everybody in that mindset was to create an internal dynasty league, um, invite my colleagues to join in that wanted to learn a little bit more about fantasy or who are already seasoned players like, like Matt, um, and then interact with some readers. And, uh, you know, Carlos was instrumental in organizing all this. I know Carlos has less experience from a fantasy perspective than maybe myself or Matt does, but I think what it does is it gives us a really interesting perspective here today to talk about how we attacked our drafts and the setup of the league, et cetera. Um, kind of give you some background, these uh, Baseball America Dynasty Leagues, shortened to battle for our acronym, which I like a lot, um, are 16-team head-to-head points leagues um, with a full major league roster that you would be familiar with from you know, an NFBC setup or your standard ESPN leagues where you have your full infield. Uh, there's four outfielders and not five like you typically would have in a 12-team league. Um, middle infield, corner infield, um, only a single catcher and then a utility spot and then nine pitcher spots that don't have to be uh, split between starters and relievers. Um, the reason that I chose uh, a head-to-head points league versus a uh, roto league, and I think people that have you know played both formats can probably back me up a little bit on this, is I think the engagement um, of just the week-to-week battles and the 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 you know um, uh, uh, the camaraderie that sort of comes from that and the interest and everything else. Um, you know, you're focused on a week to week as opposed to the bigger picture, the marathon of Roto, which I still love. Um, but I've come to like points leagues a lot. The other reason that I like points leagues is there's no standard way to really build your team. Um, you don't have to worry about, you know, um, filling up your speed. You don't have to worry about filling up your average. It's really about the totality of who produces uh, the most over the course of the season. And there's a variety of ways for players to be really good. Um, the other thing that I wanted to throw out there too is this is because we're writers and we don't have all that much time to manage our teams. This is a weekly roster, roster lock with weekly fab. So that changes um, sort of uh, uh, how we attack it a little bit differently from a week to week basis. But now that I've given you all the background, I wanted to jump in a little bit with Matt and Carlos and myself, talk a little bit about how we built the teams, what our strategies were, 
and you know uh, ultimately whether we were happy with the teams that we ended up with and uh, what parts of our team we liked and didn't like. So I'll kick it over to Matt. I know that you've had experience playing in, in Roto. You've played in a variety of different formats. You're in the Devil's Rejects uh, League with me with you know several writers that people know like Eno Saris, et cetera, folks from BP, Dynasty Guru. Um, that's an open universe, 20 team Roto League, a little bit different from this. So Matt, jumping into points, going into a different format, how did you attack it differently than you would in a roto league? Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you so much for making it points. Not only do I need to increase my literacy with that format, but it better reflects how major league teams value players. You know, there is not this outsized emphasis placed on stolen bases and saves, which I think kind of bogs down discussion in, in roto formats a little bit. So I really appreciate kind of branching out with this format. Um, but how I approached it was, to more or less build a foundation of hitters with on base and power. I mean, this is, it's, it's kind of the, it's not really a secret, but those are the foundational skills to build an offense. And then with the pitchers, um, you know, endurance counts because you get points for the innings. You know, you can sacrifice a little bit in ratios for some raw volume of other stats. So those are kind of the two overriding principles that I took. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction to make, too, is, you know, um, had this been a Roto League, I would have built my team completely different than, than how I did in terms of, you know, what my first, we'll say my base or my foundation work, what my first eight picks were, and how that was divvied up between pitchers and hitters. And I'll just, I'll just say before we go over to Carlos, Roto, you know, pitching matters, but I think there's different ways to attack it where if you don't have depth of starters in points leagues, regardless of, and there's differences in terms of how points leagues are scored, et cetera. But typically if you don't have depth of starters, you're already sort of behind the eight ball. Um, so I think that that's, you know, a, a, a fairly big difference from what you're typically used to with Roto. But that said, Carlos, I want to go over to you. Um, you have less ex fantasy experience. You've, you're looking to get into it. You're mm -hmm. looking to learn more about it. So what sort of preparation did you do um, going to the draft? Did you look at the scoring? Mm -hmm. Did you figure out maybe certain types of players that you wanted to go after? Or was it more like, I want to go in, I want to get my guys, and <laughs> we'll figure out how all this shakes out? Yeah, I think it was probably a combination. I think like Matt, I was, I was excited to do this just because we are doing more fantasy content, doing the hot 100 every year and not really being a regular player. I was in one fantasy league that wasn't super active, um, and so I really just felt like I needed more experience to kind of see where the differences were in value from a real life prospects perspective versus the fantasy element. How does that change how players are viewed? Um, just so I could do a little bit better job on the fantasy pieces uh, that we are creating at Baseball America. I know you guys obviously have a ton of expertise and can kind of guide people like myself or Ben, who are really in the prospect world, the amateur prospect world, and maybe don't have that literacy on the fantasy side to that extent but I also just wanted to be in an engaged fantasy league um, and certainly with a group of BA writers and BA readers and subscribers I feel like we've got a chance to have a really engaged and fun league and in terms of my strategy kind of hearing you guys talk about the differences in roto and points I, I feel like I'm a little bit behind the eight ball already here because I, I took Whit Merrifield because I was like oh I gotta get some steals he's still on the board here and I'm like oh maybe that pick was a little bit of a reach, especially considering the age. But I think my general strategy was just, 
I wanted to go very hitter heavy. I didn't really want to mess with the pitchers at all. I know that compared to several people in this league, I probably have less of a, a smart gauge on good values and good picks. So I wanted to just remove as much risk as I could. Uh, and so for me, part of that is just not dealing with the pitchers at the top and trying to get as many of the elite bats that I could. Um, and in general, I also wanted to steer young. I, I've been in some fantasy football leagues that are dynasty style. Um, and the teams that I saw had success really um, maybe took a few risks with young players that weren't established yet. And that helped them form a core that's going to be around for a while. So I tried to balance um, safety with hitters and then also going after some of these maybe more risky, but high upside players. Uh, and part of that also was where my draft position was. I was at seven. I really wanted to pick where Matt was and Matt actually took the player that I was kind of eyeballing with his pick. I guess we can get into specifics about um where we're picking and how that impacts strategy. But in general, I wanted to go hitter heavy and I wanted to dip into the prospects early uh, because I felt like just given my knowledge of the top 100 and of a lot of the prospects in the league, knowing in general that Matt kind of steers towards now players um, and, and that that would be another BA kind of writer who knows a lot about these prospects who's not playing in that pool. I felt that maybe I could get a little bit of an advantage because I would be picking among the elite prospects before a guy like Matt would. So that's kind of what I was thinking entering this draft. And I don't think that's a bad strategy. And, I, and I'll also say that there's multiple ways to build teams and there's multiple ways and, and focuses. You know, if you're looking at, you know, a longer window where it's like, hey, there's and there's great players that do this. where like, hey, I'll punt year one and I'll draft, you know, three or four top players under 25 to start and two of them might be you know among the lead prospects one of the guys that you got was julio rodriguez um you know an elite prospect there and a guy that you know if things click right any a year from now we could be sitting here and saying this guy's a first rounder you know um things turn around quickly on those guys so i do understand the return on investment especially with like a second round or a little bit later going after some of those prospects. And I, I mean, I'll give a shout out to Tom Trudeau, who I know is in our, our Devils Rejects League. Tom has a strategy where he pretty much punts year one. And I remember going back years ago, he had a draft where it was like his first three picks were like, uh, I want to say it was like Acuna, Vlad, and then like Soto. And like everyone says, oh, that's crazy. What are you doing? You're, you're punting. He's drafting all these prospects. You know, you get. And then a year later, you look at that team and you're like, he's got an incredible core for three, four, five years, you know? Um, so I think that there's two different heads. Like I definitely try to skew older. I typically go after, I try to look at it from a three-year window and we have our, our dynasty top 1000 and I did that drop. And really like, that's what my focus was is it was like, I could look at this from like total career, or I could look at it from like a three-year window, who's going to contribute. And, you know, things are constantly evolving. So when I go into a league, my, my focus on this one was like, I want to get my pitchers early. I want to have, you know, an absolute, like, you know, late nineties Yankees kind of a staff where I got four or five guys that are rolling out. I know they're going to get innings. I know they're going to get outs. They're going to get strikeouts. You know, they're going to put up, I'll say 20 plus point performances, having played in the scoring like this for years in different, you know, different leagues. I want pitchers that are going to come out and give me 20 plus point performances I drafted at the back end of the first round. I had to pick on the turn. Um, and I had uh, 
I had started out with Bryce Harper, who I actually would have taken as high as 10 in this league, just simply because of the OBP element of it, the points element of it. A guy like Harper um, is nearly like a perfect offensive player because he gets on base at an incredibly high rate. That's going to boost those points. He hits for a ton of power. He hits in a premium position in his lineup, so he's going to see a fair amount of at-bats. Um, and he's also going to be able to drive in a lot of runs and score a fair amount of runs. Yeah. So I, I am kind of curious, just jumping in here, like how, how do you guys view the different strategies you need to take or how a draft position impacts how you can pick? I know talking with Matt prior to the draft, he, he told me he kind of liked those picks towards the middle of the round because you can react to runs on positions a little bit better. I felt that was definitely the case for, for myself. Uh, I wanted to pick in the three or four spot because I really felt like that was the latest I could pick and still get a chance to get Vladimir, who sure. really was my number one player just because of his, just the baseline of his offense and the positional scarcity and his age. Like I thought he was solidly among the top four elite young hitting prospects or, or hitting players in the game. And for me, the positional scarcity that he added made him kind of the ideal target. Matt, you got him at three. Like how, how do you, is he the guy you wanted there? And how do you, I guess you, you guys are picking on the opposite ends of the round and I'm kind of in the middle. How does that impact how you draft? Uh, yeah, I'm picking third. You know, I, I had a good feeling that it would be Tatis or Soto or, or Guerrero available to me. So I was prepared just to take whichever one fell. And it turned out to be Vlad, which, you know, I was happy to see. You know, this being points, you get credit for, um, in addition to his home runs and RBIs, you get credit for his doubles and his walks, which is just huge. So I think it's just a, a great foundation to start. And you don't have to worry about speed in the first round. So that was another added bonus of this format that made the choice easier for me. Yeah. And then with me, I was picking seven. I felt like there were six pretty clear players that I thought were going to go in front of me. I thought it was going to be the three you mentioned. Acuna, Jose Ramirez, and then I thought Boba Shett was the last guy. And so I was kind of targeting, okay, if I'm going to go young, I feel like Wander Franco is a guy who, who could be in that top four group of players a year from now. And I debated some of the other players. I thought there's a pretty big fall off after that first four. So I was like, okay, Wander's my guy. Um, Darren scoops him in front of me at number six. And so I'm left there with Boba Shett. I thought about it for a little, a little bit. I, I like the fact that he's young. He has speed. He has power. He has average. He's going to be hitting in front of Vladdy for a while. So I just kind of thought he was the best player available and then took him. Um, but, but I definitely was eyeing Wander and wanted to get him at the seven spot and wasn't able to do that. Yeah. And I think the other thing there too is, um, you know, it's, it's smart to fill up on the positions early on of the elite guys, especially if you feel like there's a significant drop off in certain positions and it's funny enough, but it, it like, because it's an offensive position, right. But first base is a lot like that where yeah. um, it's like you, you hit a point and it was like, you know, after a certain number, like there's like 20 first basemen that almost feel exactly the same. Mm -hmm. It's like, you got 20 versions of Luke Voigt. And the yeah. price tag is either more expensive than Luke Voigt for Luke Voigt or a little bit cheaper than Luke Voigt mm -hmm. for Luke Voigt. But it's a very similar skill set. And there's like 20 of those guys. Mm -hmm. So I do agree that getting Vladimir Guerrero Jr., getting that baseline of average on top of the OBP with the power and everything else mixed in, mm -hmm. that you're getting like a, you know, a player that every time he gets in at bat has an opportunity to provide you points. Yeah. And you're not necessarily worried about stolen bases, things like that, you know. Yeah. Um, so agree there. Yeah. And, and I, then I think the same thing on the chef. 
Yeah, and I, I think the one thing with Bichette too is I really didn't want to take a shortstop in the first round because I felt like shortstop was a pretty deep position. Like we go deep into those positional rankings, and I feel like there are a lot of really good players. I almost wish that I could have had a another position of scarcity, like maybe if Jose Ramirez fell to me, third base seems to fall off pretty quickly, like first base. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's just a, another little wrinkle in what I was thinking. And, and neither had, had Raphael Devers been drafted at that point, Carlos? He he was still on the board. I was considering him. I think the group that I was considering at that point with Tatis, Soto, Guerrero, Cunha, Ramirez, and Franco off the board, I was thinking about Bichette, Turner, Devers, uh, and I believe Cal Tucker was actually the other wild card for me that I was thinking about. And and I just looking at kind of rankings where everyone viewed these players, where Bo went in previous drafts with with people who I know know the game. I just felt like he was the safest pick for me at that point. Um, mm-hmm. I never really thought about Otani because I do think one of the weaknesses of my fantasy game is going to be kind of that roster management and lineup construction. And I just wanted no part in trying to like min max his usage in our league. And maybe with the weekly settings, it's easier to use a guy like Shohei Otani or a little bit more hands off. Uh, but but I wanted no part of that one. Yeah, it's more hands off. I actually wanted to, to mm-hmm. mention that because Otani went uh, at eight, correct? To Mark. Yeah, right he went after, eight right, right behind me. Seven. And, yep. you know, I think Otani is interesting and very format dependent. If this was a daily moves league mm-hmm. and we were able to move Otani back and forth and toggle between hitter and pitcher because in fan tracks you can he's one player so you can actually use him on both sides of the roster matrix but when it's weekly you got to make a decision do i want otani's bat or do i want the pitcher and i think that that sort of negates some of his value a little bit some of the value is the fact that you can use him on both sides this is a roto league with daily with daily moves he's probably a top three pick i think you could probably even make a case that he's number one because of the type of you know, uh, values yeah. two players in one, right? Feels so like a like, bit of a cheat code if you can literally get all of his starts plus exactly. all of his all of his hitting. So for me, it was like if I'm going to take this guy in the first round, I'm going to have to make a decision. I'm probably going to use him as a hitter. How many is he going to see the volume of at bats that I need for that to really pay off? And it wasn't available to me. I mean, I picked it at 16 at the back of the round, so that wasn't the case. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Otani is a difficult one in a format like this um, with this scoring, but more so when it's when it's you know weekly yeah. moves and you're not going to be able to move them, you know, into into uh, the, the the pitching side mm-hmm. of things. So I think that definitely makes a, a huge difference here. Jeff, um, I wanted to ask about your your pitcher selection. You're you're on the turn. You had picked 16 yeah. and 17. You took Harper 16, and then Burns 17. He was the second pitcher off the board in our draft. Garrett Cole was the first. He went off the board at 11, I guess, unless you're including Otani, which we think he'll be used more as a hitter in in this league. Sure. Was Burns, like, where was he at in your your pitcher rankings? If he wasn't on the board, would you have still gone pitcher there with your second pick? And you did kind of start a little bit of a run on pitching at the beginning of the second round with Jacob deGrom, Walker Bueller, and Shane Bieber coming off the board shortly after that. So, so what's the thinking with pitcher in yeah. this league? I feel like my strategy might be a little bit akin to zero running back in fantasy football. And if that's the case, I might be screwed, but um, just what's your thinking with that? And so, were you happy that Burns was on the board there? Yeah, I was. And it's funny because in Roto, I am a, a, a zealot on the other side, almost to an extreme where like I'll take eight hitters in Roto before I take a pitcher. 
because I feel like I can finesse the categories. I think I'm going to petition that we change our scoring settings at Roto because my team might be better suited for that. <laughs> so, so when I, um, so when I, I, I go into a league like this, you know, I know that, you know, from my um, experience in my home league, which is similar scoring to this. And then the same with like my, my tout wars league that I've been doing now for, this is going to be the fourth year that I'm doing it in a couple of weeks. Um, pitching is, you know, starting pitching is incredibly valuable. Like in my home dynasty league, you know, people traded Mookie Betts uh, and multiple other players in order to acquire David Price years ago. You know, like it, it's it's the kind of thing where if you have a guy that can throw 200 innings or close to it, get you W's, get you quality starts, and you know, every time he goes out, could have eight to 12, you know, strikeouts. Um, that's a guy that's incredibly valuable. And I didn't expect Harper to fall to me. Um, I kind of anticipated that Albies wouldn't go or maybe go in the second round. So I had my cue set up when this pick happened that um, it was Harper, Burns, Walker Bueller. So I was fully prepared to double up on pitchers here. And I probably would have taken a third pitcher um, in, in round three or four at that turn. Um, I wanted to get the depth early. I feel like there's enough hitters in the middle of the draft this year that have good value. Um, and that's really what my focus was, was trying to build a good baseline, four or five starters where I was like, all right, these guys can, you know, give me 170 to 200 plus innings, double digit wins, you know, 15 quality starts or more. And, you know, average will say somewhere around, you know, nine to 10 Ks per nine. Um, and being able to get guys like that, I felt was, was really important because there were going to be plenty of hitters later on to backfill it's dynasty as well. Um, and I sort of felt like there's going to be a, there's going to be a point where guys have to stop drafting prospects and start drafting their major league teams. And that's when I can come in oh, never. And, just, and just scoop up all the prospects that, that dropped. So that was sort of what my perspective was and what my focus was, how I sort of attacked this draft was trying to get those pitchers early fill in with some good hitters. I mean, I, I still got, you know, Bryce Harper. Um, I would have liked it if, um, you know, story had dropped to me or Corey Seager or even, you know, Austin Riley or Tim Anderson for that matter. Uh, that didn't happen. And I ended up going with um, Carlos Correa as my, as my second hitter a little earlier than I would have yeah. liked, but I do believe in Correa and, you know, hope that he signs in New York. <laughs> I think I, I took a similar overall approach. I don't think I got as good starting pitchers as Jeff did, but I was definitely uh, willing to wait on prospects. And I believe I was the last person in the 19th round to draft a prospect when I took yeah. Michael Harris, the second. We thought about firing <laughs> and, you from BA for that. Strategy. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, 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 you know, to the point about starting pitchers, I, you know, I took Zach Wheeler 30th, uh, Max Freed 67th, Eduardo Rodriguez 99th. Then a little later on, uh, Fran Valdez and Jordan Montgomery inside the top 200. So I feel like that's a decent foundation, but I don't think it was as strong as what Jeff was able to do, especially in the one, two, three spots. Yeah, and I had just tried to um, – so, like, when I, when I look back on my draft, I went Harper first round. I went Burns in the second rounds. I went Giolito in the third Um Carlos Correa in the fourth. And then at the next turn, I doubled up on pitcher again and went Musgrove and Castillo. And I felt like, you know, Castillo was a guy that had underperformed the previous season, especially in the first half, was better in the second half. 
there's an opportunity he could get moved out of Cincinnati into a better ballpark. Um, I think that helps as mm -hmm. well. Um, Giolito, I feel like is, you know, among that sort of um, that upper echelon tier of, of starters. He may be at the back end of that tier, but he's still there. He's still young enough. Um, Musgrove is a nice breakout. You know, I like, I like the inning potential there. Um, so, you know, I, I tried to, I tried to really sort of build that foundation with those four starters early and then following that, you know, the next, um, whatever, five rounds, I went, I went all hitters until I went, I went with, uh, Herman Marquez in, uh, in a 12th. But after that, I mean, I was trying to pretty much build my, my outfield, um, get a couple of infielders that I felt were maybe undervalued in Moncada and, and Glaber. Um, and just, you know, tried to lean in a little bit to guys that I felt um, maybe had fallen down the board a little bit and presented some good value. Um, so there was a lot of value picks with the hitters. We'll see if it, if it blows up in my face or not. <laughs> I think that's kind of what my, my question is about my draft is, you know, did I go two hitter heavy? Um, and then there were a couple other picks that I didn't, I didn't totally love. Um, I guess going into that, let's, let's go over to Matt and then over to Carlos, but Matt, what are a couple of picks that you really liked that you made? And then a couple of picks that you made that, you know, maybe you didn't feel as great about looking back on it. Um, concurrent to this draft, I was doing another startup of dynasty points head to head. Um, so I kind of learned some lessons from, from a uh, misfiring in that draft. And one of the key things I picked up in that other one was that I did not emphasize field appropriately. And I kind of got stuck in that format with Dansby Swanson and Jonathan scope you know, who are fine, but I wanted to make that a point of emphasis with this one. So I, that's, that helps steer me to Xander Bogarts in the third round and Jorge Polanco in the sixth. Wanted to make sure I had some um, middle infield foundation. Um, and, and by doing that and, and focusing on pitchers, it, it did leave me a little weaker in the outfield than I would have wanted to be. Um, you know, Brian Reynolds in the fourth, uh, you know, and then from there, it's we're we're into the second and third tiers pretty quickly for me. It's um, Michael Conforto in the tenth, Andrew Benintendi in the next Kepler in the twentieth. You know, we're at pick three eighteen. You know, Kepler is not uh, a super hot pick, I would say, in, in fantasy. But <laughs> considering the other options, he's going to play. He has on base foundation, and he has shown some power. Uh, so that's what I went there. So and then. You know, did not place an emphasis on catcher because once, you know, the Sal Perez and Real Muto and Will Smith are off the board, there didn't seem to be a lot of uh, differentiation between catchers. So ended up kind of rolling the dice on Alejandro Kirk there. So we'll see how that plays out. <laughs> well, and I think that's interesting, too, because um, when I look at points leagues, uh, one of the things that I always try to focus on is um, I'll say familiar with like a war metric but value over replacement so you know wh whoever the the average player is at that position what's the delta between that player and then the top players right um and i think with catcher the delta is huge especially with a guy like will smith or you know real muto where smith is a great example because he gets on base he hits for some power maybe the batting average some of that stuff might throw you off the scent in a, in a roto league, but in a points league like this, some of those guys are actually big differentiators. And it was an area where 
I had considered it. And I think the, the, the move on catchers just happened a little bit earlier than I had anticipated. Yeah. Um, but I do I think it's one of the weaknesses of my team. You know, I, I definitely do think that there is, if you have, if you have a catcher that can produce like a decent first baseman, you're going to end up making up those difference mm-hmm. that that difference of points pretty, pretty quickly. So Carlos, I wanted to sort of ask you about that. Was that something that you had considered at all? Yeah, I was definitely aware of the the value over over the average positions. I knew I had done enough research to know generally where where the tiers kind of fell, which players you needed to get um, before you kind of ended up with a, a muddled group of players where there really wasn't a ton of difference. I think, like I mentioned earlier, I was picking in a range where I could react to some of these trends. I think the first one I missed on um, in front of me in the second round was Mark, and he definitely knows that I'm a big Bobby Wood Jr. fan. I think he thought I was going to take him as a first prospect. He took him um, with the 25th overall pick. I was kind of curious when these elite prospects were going to go off the board in a startup dynasty. It was a little earlier than I expected, but kind of in in the range that I thought was reasonable. Um, I knew I wanted to get one of the top three prospects on our top 100 just because I feel very safe that they're going to be productive big leaguers. Um, And the upside, getting the upside of a Julio Rodriguez who I voted for the past two years as the top prospect in baseball. I mean, if he pans out and is that player, I'm getting a Wander Franco type around later. There's some risk, obviously he's not established in the majors, but that was my thinking there. I, at that point, I was wanting to get one of the other elite first baseman, a Matt Olson or a Pete Alonso. I thought I had a chance to take Julio and get one of those first basemen to swing back to me. And I figured if I took a first baseman, there was no chance I was getting Julio because when Bobby comes off the board, I feel like the people who are taking prospects, they're going to quickly go for a J-Rod. They're going to quickly go for an Adley Rutschman. Um, that backfired on me a little. I'm, I'm still happy that I took Julio. Um, but Colin in our league did double up on Matt Olson and Pete Alonzo, and I thought that was a good move from him. He got he gets a lot of value there and basically ends that elite tier first baseman, at least as I saw it. Uh, so in my third round pick with, with no first baseman that I really thought were valuable there, I went with Austin Riley another position that I think falls off relatively quickly. And then in the fourth round kind of doubled up, did, did a similar move to Colin and taking Alex Bregman. I'm a little surprised. It seems like he's, he's quite polarizing at this point coming off his injury. Um, but I'm really high on his foundation of bat to ball skills, strike zone awareness. I think he'll have a bounce back season. I don't know that we're going to get peak home run Alex Bregman. And, and maybe there is some concern that the lineup there is a little less beefy than it's been the past few years, but I still like his foundation of, of offensive production at a position that I think is um, relatively weak. And then I got a little bit lucky in the fifth round. Will Smith goes off the board right in front of me. Uh, I knew that if I didn't get one of the top three catchers, I was basically going to punt on the position like you guys did. Um, So just picking where I was picking, um, I was like, all right, I'm not going to overthink this one too much. Let me take Real Muto, get a really good advantage at catcher. um, Because outside of Smith and if Adley comes up early and, and is the player we expect him to be, I should be getting better production at this position than most people in the league. If I don't, that, that's not a, a great spot, but I was happy with the decision there. And then I think after the fifth round is where maybe my draft starts getting a little bit too reactive. And like with Whit Merrifield being my second pick, I think I punted a little bit too much on outfield. Uh, like Matt, I was really focused on infield positions. Maybe I was a little bit worried about the scarcity of certain positions like first base catcher and third. So I wanted to target them. Uh, looking at kind of my my team at the end of the day, 
my outfield is really banking on Julio being the player that, that we expect him to be. And if not, I'm reliant on guys like uh, a Tommy Edmond, uh, a Whit Merrifield who has outfield eligibility, Ian Happ, Corbin Carroll, Harrison Bader. So I don't think my outfield is a strength of the team, but I was relatively happy with some of the positions I was able to target early. And I don't think your outfield is bad at all, because I also think, you know, you have a player here in Julio that next year could be top 10 at the position. I mean, he could come up and more or less hit very similarly to Vladimir Guerrero Jr., where you're getting batting average, you're getting OBP. He could be in, you know, a prime um, RBI producing position in a pretty good lineup on a competitive team. Um, And he also has an opportunity to maybe get called up a little bit earlier because he's on a competitive team, right? There's no reason for them to really mess with his service time. Um, They were a 91 team last year on the cusp of the playoffs. They have the longest playoff drought in North American history, uh, excuse me, uh, currently in in North American sports. I think all that stuff could play in. There's an opportunity that Julio could be up in May or June. And all of a sudden you immediately plug this player in um, that, you know, can provide a ton of value. So I didn't think you did bad there. I actually wanted to compliment you, both you and Matt on sort of how you attacked rounds three through six. Um, I thought that Austin Riley was a really good pick. You know, we saw him break out a little bit, become one of the most important hitters in a World Series team last year. And even beyond the playoffs, he had a really good year. And I think that at times, Austin Riley, even by his own fan base, has been a little underrated over the last couple of years. So I thought that was a great pick. I really liked the Alex Bregman pick. I thought you got good value there at 58. this is a guy for a format like this. He doesn't strike out much. He walks. He takes good at bats. He can hit for power. He can hit for average. He's still going to be in a good lineup that produces a lot of runs. Uh, I thought it, and there's obviously there's still a chance you could see 20 games and qualify at shortstop too. I, you know, I don't think that's completely out of the realm of possibility depending upon how their roster shakes out. So I saw, I thought Bregman was a good pick. He's been a little bit underrated by a lot of fantasy guys this year, particularly in redraft formats. I thought Real Mudo, we talked a little bit about the delta between replacement value and sort of the top guys at the position. Real Mudo is pretty much the top guy at the position. Um, you know, I would bank on him having a better season over the next three years than what the production is from Sal Perez over the next three years, frankly, especially in a format like this that does have value in walks. And I thought that getting Whit Merrifield with multiple position eligibility at 90 was actually a really good pick. Because what that does is that gives you flexibility for when, let's say, Julio comes up, you have an issue at second base, your second base production is as good as you thought, and then move Witt into second base. Vice versa, you find a second baseman, someone's producing there off the waiver wire, you plug that guy in, all of a sudden, um, Witt is an outfielder. Having that multi-position eligibility, and it's a lot different when you know, you're not dealing with a 12-team league and the shallowness of a 12-team league where the waiver wire has you know, a lot of players available. When you have weekly lock, you only have an opportunity to add players once a week. There's times that you may even miss on a player that you want to add. There could be an injury, happens before lock, something you couldn't plan on, uh, an injury, you know, guys out for a month that gets announced at 12 o'clock on a Monday you have to make a roster decision for three o'clock and lock in your roster for the week. It's great to have a player like Merrifield that has that multi-position eligibility that could potentially cover for other guys that might be missing in your lineup. So I like that pick a lot. 
And then I thought, you know, the picks that you made uh, with Volpe and then Tommy Edmond, another multi-position guy at seven and eight were really good picks. And then going over to Matt, Brian Reynolds, I think is incredibly underrated in all fantasy formats, particularly here, just because of all the things that he does really well. There's an opportunity that he could get traded and end up in a better lineup and a better situation. Um, but I still think on the Pirates, he's going to hit a premium position. He's going to see a ton of at-bats. And even if the players and the lineup around him isn't great, he's still going to produce because of the type of hitter he is. I think Max Fried is really underrated. It was smart. In this format, you have to be less concerned with sort of the K per nine aspect like you do uh, in the ratios in a roto format. You're looking for guys that give you a lot of innings and give you, and give you a lot of outs without giving up a lot of hits and a lot of runs. Max Fried does that. So a lot of the stuff that maybe negates his value in a Roto league, I think sort of accentuates his value in a format like this. And then I thought Jorge Polanco, in my opinion, is one of the most underrated players in all of fantasy baseball. He's a guy that in Roto leagues and, and actually some points leagues, I think I've taken as high as 70, 65. And if you look at the projections, he projects out as a top 40 hitter. And I think if we look at the way he ranked last year, he was within the top 50 players. So another really underrated guy, and I believe he has second base and shortstop eligibility. So going back to my previous point, a guy that has multi-position eligibility. And I think Eduardo Rodriguez is a guy that could come back and bounce back in a big way. Really like those picks. And I liked, I liked Brian Hayes in the eighth as um, sort of a post-hype sleeper that gets on base at a high rate. Yeah. He starts to hit for some power. Those numbers could come along. He does a little bit of everything well, and his glove is going to keep him in the lineup, which is something that gets overlooked in fantasy. You want a guy that's going to be able to have value in a multitude of ways for his team, so it's tough for them to take him out of the lineup. He's not going to admit, you know, we don't have to worry about the DH any longer, but back when we had to worry about the DH, you know, you had to worry about guys like your next pick, J.D. Martinez, not maybe playing when they go to Philadelphia, where it's like, hey, I want to – have J.D. Martinez in the lineup feasting on that Philadelphia lineup in that ballpark, and maybe you miss those mm -hmm. opportunities. The Cabrian Hayes pick, I really yeah. like too. I wasn't – he was one guy that I was kind of looking at and trying to get around this range. I, I wasn't really emphasizing third base because I had doubled up earlier, but I feel like if he elevates the ball a little bit more this year, similar to what Vladdy did year over year for his massive breakout, I obviously I don't think he's the, the type of hitter that Vladdy is, but – just tweaking his batted ball profile, I feel like could unlock a lot with Cabrian Hayes. And, and I, I was really bummed that you took him, Matt, because I wanted to get him maybe in the next round. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah one, one soft factor with Hayes, uh, you know, Jeff mentioned the defense, which is key, keeps him in the lineup. But I think also the, uh, the platoon split issue also keeps him in the lineup because he's not going to sit against left-handers like some of the other players I was considering at this point. I was looking outfield here, um, Alex Verdugo and Trent Grisham being two two hitters I was looking at but the fact that they're going to sit potentially or be neutralized definitely by left-handed pitchers kind of steered me in the direction of Hayes here we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. 
What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Yeah, and I, I thought you did a really good job just from, you know, a roster construction standpoint. Um, even looking down, like, Carlos, I thought I, I was too scared to jump in on Max Muncy with the elbow stuff. But he is su- if he's healthy, if yeah. he gets 500 at-bats, he is such a good pick for this format. Yeah, that's, it was honestly with, one of my favorite picks for the draft. <laughs> I just didn't have the stones to be able to pull it off. I think I had looked at him for a couple rounds, knowing <laughs> that he had that upside at first base, knowing that I had missed on, on the Olsen and um, who was the other one? Uh, Alonso earlier in the draft. Mm-hmm. There was a couple, like, I, th- I think there is a big group of first basemen that are quite similar in value. And I thought that Muncie's bat had some of the biggest upside. And like you're saying, I, I don't know if I just discounted the injury too much because I-, I just view him as a first baseman and it's not really that important. It is still important. Like, like you guys are saying, he has to be out there on the field. It still could impact the bat. Like if he is healthy, I feel pretty good about it, but it is one of the bigger health risks I think that I've taken in this draft. Yeah, that, that pick might have the biggest delta at the end of the year between draft position and actual points scored. Especially now that he's getting all this extra rest and recovery because of the owners. Like they're, they're mm. buying him a couple of weeks for him <laughs> to further <laughs> recover and be ready. So I don't think it was all that bad. Carlos, I wanted to ask too, like, so you did a really good job, certainly better than Matt or I, of buying some some good value on the MLB side, but also sprinkling in some really interesting prospects. And we talked about Julio mm-hmm. at pick 26 in the second round, but um, you went back to the well again in round seven and got somebody else that I think is an elite fantasy prospect. And that's Anthony Volpe, shortstop from the Yankees in the seventh. Uh, you went with Edmund, Muncie, and then you went back to Corbin Carroll at 154. And I thought that yeah. was a great pick, especially when you look at some of the players that went ahead of Carroll. Ellie De La Cruz went at 152. Um, uh, Brennan Davis went at 150. 
mm-hmm. um, you know. Yeah, I think this is, that, yeah. this is part of my thinking and, and this podcast has been really good for my ego because you're really boosting a lot of these picks and maybe <laughs> none of them will turn out, but uh, it does feel nice. But my thinking was kind of that I, I thought there was a big group of major league players in this range that are pretty similar. And I didn't feel that I had either one, done enough research to know who the true values were, or two, just felt confident um, in in taking a player who was going to be a breakout. I I think there's a huge range of players, especially hitters, and with me targeting hitters earlier, I feel like the difference in the prospects available right now is so significantly bigger than the difference in the major league players available. So I knew that I wanted to keep getting into this tier of hitters, really top, top 25, top 30, prospect bats on our top 100 i i feel confident in that demographic panning out just historically and i like the tools and the upside so i just felt like i knew that the difference in in talent on the prospect side in my mind felt greater than the difference in talent on the major league side and i was just like okay a lot of these players are going to still be available for me at the major league side because people have not been targeting prospects they're filling up their spots on the major league roster once they start pivoting to the prospects who are available, I'll, I'll be able to take some of these major league veterans who, who I don't view as a huge difference in value to fill out my roster while people are picking from the 50 to 100 range on the prospects. I mean, I really like Corbin Carroll. We're high on him at Baseball America. I think he's got the, the batting eye, the plate discipline, and the power to really do a lot of things well offensively. At a premium position, it's another health risk. He obviously had the shoulder issue. Um, but again, seeing like, like you mentioned with some of the prospects who went in front of him, not to say that a guy like Ellie De La Cruz won't be a monster. He, he really could. I just felt like the value was there for me to take him. Um, and I don't know that if Carol is a guy who's just, um, his hype has been dampened a bit because of the injury, but, but I've been high on him since an amateur and I was happy to get him there. Yeah. And if you, and if it's all systems go, you know, I thought that was, a um, you know, a pick where, people were going to look back in a couple of years and say, damn, how did you get Carlos, you know, how did Carlos land Corbin Carroll in, in, uh, in, in round 10, you know, hopefully that's one. the case. Cause we can talk about my pictures <laughs> soon since my first, my first one comes out the board shortly. Yeah. Well, I liked, I liked, you took, you took Jack Leiter. Um, I think for a, for a long-term play, I thought the value was really good there. I know Bassett was your first arm off the board. Correct. Um, which is a really underrated guy. He's somebody that does go kind of like we were talking about with Max Freed. Maybe the strikeouts aren't off the charts. He goes deep in the games. He get, gets quality starts. I roster him on my home league <laughs> that this league was based off of in terms of scoring. So that tells you that I definitely like that pick. And I yeah. think that I wrote about it and, and, I, and it's going to be up on the site, I think today or tomorrow. And I know it's in our magazine too, but I feel like Lighter is a guy that, is honestly a little undervalued right now in fantasy, just because this was one of the best college pitchers that we've watched um, in, in dominant college pitchers at a top program um, in quite a few years. He went early in the draft. There's pedigree, you know, there's a big fastball. There's no question on the stuff. Like there might've been with like Casey Mize's fastball. Um, I, I think Leiter is a guy that could come out this year and you know get assigned to double A. And next year we're sitting here being like, is Leiter part of the Rangers opening day yeah. rotation? I mean, it's that is a, a very reasonable expectation with Leiter. Um, and I think that that maybe because he's a pitcher and because it's fantasy, 
we sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater when in reality, this is, this is a unique college pitcher. There haven't yeah. been as many guys that were as positioned to maybe move as quickly to the majors as lighter is. Yeah, I took lighter one, 186 overall in the 12th round. I thought it was just a value play. There were some of the elite pitchers coming off the board in that range. Um, and honestly, it was a, a, like a flip play for me. I feel like lighter is a player who a lot of people really like. I know a lot of people in our league are obsessed with his fastball profile. He's a guy who I wouldn't mind trading if he goes out early and performs and the hype just continues to grow. Um, but my other pitchers in this range, I was really just trying to get guys who are going to log a lot of innings because missing out on those premium pitchers, I just need guys who are going to log innings and be reasonable starters for me in this range. So I'm really curious to see how my pitching shakes out the rest of the season because compared to y'all's starting rotations, it is quite rough. Yeah, well, I, I don't think that with these rounds, and this kind of is a nice segue, I don't think you're necessarily positioned to compete this year right away. That said, you can play the waiver wire, you can make astute trades and potentially add those pieces that you need. And once the season starts and the games start to be played, fingers crossed, we'll start to you'll start to recognize some of the things that maybe you missed on, some of the areas of need. Every team that drafted is going to need something Nobody drafted a perfect team. Nobody walks away from the draft ever with a squad that they're not going to have to make updates and trades and et cetera throughout. Now, Matt, that I wanted to go into your draft, particularly starting in round 12. I felt like from 12 to 20, 21, did an awesome job of identifying players that, you know, maybe are a little bit undervalued, but provide a lot compared to some of the other risks that were there. There was a high floor in a lot of these guys. I think there's opportunities with these guys. There's some flexibility with them. I think Jordan Montgomery is a very underrated pitcher in this format, especially the way pitchers are flying off the board. He was a guy that I would have targeted. I actually wanted to get, I ended up getting forced into Clayton Kershaw, which is the pick that I hated the most was taking Kershaw <laughs> at 208 and then reading things like he may not play next year. That wasn't a great feeling. <laughs> but like, I thought Montgomery was, was a great pick. I thought um, Enrique Hernandez, who has multi-position infield and outfield eligibility. And here's the other thing. When you have infield and outfield eligibility, he's eligible at middle infield. He's eligible at second mm -hmm. base. He's eligible at utility. And then you have four spots in your outfield that he can play in. So when you think about how much of your roster that player can potentially fill in, I think there's a lot of value there. I love the Benintendi pick. I really like the, the Donaldson pick who are both really good points players in terms of, you know, the way that they contribute and how their skill sets work in points versus other formats. And I thought Matt's another underrated pitcher in a good situation, looked good last year, um, going to a better ballpark as well. Presley at this point, um, there was a certain point where closers started to have a little bit more value and they were better than some of the starters that are available. Presley was one of those guys. Araldis was one of those guys. Kimmy Jansen was one of those guys. Uh, and you grabbed your, your, first, your first prospect in round 19 with Michael Harris, who for a guy who held off, off on prospects as long as you did, you still ended up with a guy that I think some people would rank within the top 50 for fantasy prospects. So I thought you did really well there. And then to sort of round it out, you already talked about your Max Kepler and Alejandro Kirk picks. I thought both of those were good. Kirk is maybe in real life seems less like a everyday catcher in fantasy for what you're going to get from Kirk. If he sees, even if he's seeing DH at bats or whatever, if he gets 400, 500 at bats, he's going to produce good numbers because he is, a very good offensive player. And then Max Kepler, I felt has been a little bit underrated. He had a down year. There was some fluky stuff that happened in terms of luck, et cetera. 
And he's a guy that could bounce back this year. Toronto's, uh, Toronto's, Minnesota's lineup could be better as well. Um, so I, I thought that Kepler at 318 was really good value, especially when you're looking at some of the guys that are going around there. A- Abraham Toro, Mark Conha, Nico Horner went before him, uh, Jeff McNeil. And it's totally plausible that Kepler could out earn every single one of those guys. So what were your sort of thoughts in those middle rounds? Because I thought you did a really good job of sort of attacking it and backfilling and getting that, you know, that really strong sort of foundation uh, on your major league roster here. Uh, yeah, uh, Jordan Montgomery, everything, everything is good about him except for the, the park and, and the competition he has to play. That's, that's the one hesitation there. Um, but you'd rather have a lefty in Yankee Stadium than a righty, and he's going to be supported by great lineup and offense and everything else that goes with being a Yankee. So uh, I think he's my, he's my fifth starter, so I felt good about that, how he slotted in. Um, Enrique Hernandez, you know, finished the year really strong, kind of some underlying batted ball metrics that are, are very encouraging to me. Uh, it's a great park for him. And just, I wanted no part of middle infield past this point. So I was going to reach, if it had to be 20 picks, I was going to reach to avoid the rest of the middle infield. Um, I agree on Benintendi, kind of a balanced hitter who walks and doesn't strike out, gap power, is going to bat high in the lineup and play every day. Uh, Donaldson continues to put up great uh, batted ball metrics. You know, you mentioned the, the Stephen Matz pick. You know, it's it, it's a great park. It's a great defense. It's a great schedule. I think there's a lot of encouraging uh, factors there for him. And then Michael Harris, uh, he's one of three top 100 prospects I drafted. And I, to, get, to get him in the 19th round, I was encouraged. I think there's more power there based on his batting practice. And his home park did him no favors last year, all seven home runs on the road. So I, I see some power growth there. I know I won't get rewarded as much for the speed, but I think there's a solid hitting foundation. Yeah, and it's not to say that speed is, um, you know, completely, uh, you know, not valuable at all. You still score points off of that. You just want some other skill sets. So, you know, a guy like <laughs> Miles Straw, who I ended up drafting, isn't as valuable because he doesn't hit for power the one thing about miles straw that kind of saves him there is the fact that he walks um but carlos i know that you were sort of interested in how matt and i had a had attack prospects so yeah it feels like we had how you went after it and then we'll kind of contrast our styles just because it it feels like i i was more comfortable or at least more more willing to draft them early on I'm curious how you guys thought about the prospect pool that you were able to pick from. Um, and, and then when you were taking prospects, what was your strategy in the players that you ID'd and went after? Were you looking for hitters specifically just because the hit rate is, is more consistent? Were you looking for pitchers who have specific qualities that you really like? How did you guys attack it? Because for me, I mean, you really don't have to think too much about taking a J-Rod or an Anthony Volpe or any number of the guys that I took early on. It's just kind of like, okay, they're available here. I want to take a prospect. I don't mind missing the major league players that that I'm going to be missing out on here. Don't really think too much about it. But when you guys are looking at at least a group of prospects that that aren't in that top 10 range or that top 25 range, how do you guys attack it? Is it just personal favorites? Is it players who you think are going to be in the majors quickly, just what's your strategy there? For me, it was a little bit of, of, of everything. Um, you know, I was looking at the player pool, um, at around, 
my first prospects for 15, round 15 and 16. I was seeing the prospects going. I had a pretty good base of what I wanted for my offense and my pitchers at that point. And I wanted a couple of guys that I felt um, could be in the majors within a year or so, potentially cover positions where I might need uh, some backfill like second base or the outfield. Um, and guys that I felt had like sort of a baseline of, of hit tools. So I grabbed Nick Gonzalez and Austin Martin there. Um, you know, yeah, he's, Gonzalez, he's one of the ones I was still trying to grab Martin, you know, that, <laughs> well, and I'm going to say that, like, I was like, oh man, I'm like, I bet I could probably draft Austin Martin here. And that would be a really nice trade chip. If Los wants anything. Yeah. We, let's talk a draft later, Austin Martin <laughs> trade later. <laughs> um, and then like my next prospect wasn't till round 23 and I took Matt Brash. And the reason I took Brash is I thought one of the advantages to this setup was the fact that if a player is prospect eligible and uh, entering the year, they remain eligible to be in your minor leagues at any point during the season. So if I have an injury to my major league staff, I can call up Matt Brash and that allows me an open spot in my minor leagues to then put in a claim and fab for, you know, whatever, uh, X, Y, Z pitcher or hitter who's having an early stage breakout that didn't get drafted and is available on the waiver wire. So it allowed me to, you know, some of the mechanisms of how it moved, I really liked there. That's why I went after some, some more prospect pitchers than I typically would have gone after, but really like I was mixing them in uh, here and there. I, I, I dropped uh, Joey Dude. Weimer on the 26th. Yeah, me in a little bit later, Dalton Jeffries. Um, and then I kind of went a, skewed a little bit younger as mm -hmm. um, it went along. But I was trying early on to kind of backfill my major league roster with guys that could potentially contribute this year or next year. Yeah. And then just kind of looked at the sexiest players at the end, the prospects that nobody took that I was like, hey, he's 17, 18, but the bat's loud or this that's, is loud. That's pretty interesting because I, I was pretty major league roster agnostic when I was taking these players. I was just trying to take the best prospects I could. And, and it makes sense given how you guys drafted early targeting your major league team. W was that similar for you, Matt? Were you trying to backfill and and kind of create some of these flexibilities that you could with, with roster management throughout the year? Or were there specific player types you were going for in the prospect pool? Uh, to, to some degree, I did want that majors minors flexibility. That was a key component of drafting Mitch White of the Dodgers and Kyle Isbell of the Royals. Um, but for the most part, I was very comfortable drafting faraway players who had no proximity value. Um, I think especially a focus on shortstops and center fielders. I was, you know, they tend to be more athletic, they tend to be able to make more adjustments. Um, and, you know, the farther, the farther away they are from the majors, you know, the odds are better that they're going to perform better at lower levels of the minors, which in my mind is a trade value boost as, as I'm trying to improve the major league team. I think some of the numbers will be a little shinier on some of these guys. So um, is, is on the your, position side, is your minor league strategy basically like day trading? Like you want to take guys that you like who can increase value, flip them, win value to help your major league team now. Is that basically how you think about it? It is a large component, yes, in the decision making. Yeah, and you know you have to kind of make some educated guesses on some of these players. So I took Christian uh, Hernandez of the Cubs, Jay Allen of the Reds, Matt McLean of the Reds, um, James Wood of the Padres. You know, players like that. I mean, these these guys are not top one hundred consensus guys, but I think they have significant growth potential. On the pitching side, I'm looking more for you know, if not major league proximity, proximity to like age 22, 23, 
I think that's generally when pitchers tend to be able to handle more of a major league workload. Um, I'm looking for stuff, ideal age, and um, strikeout minus walk ability. Those are kind of the biggest three factors. And just some of the pitches I took were Brandon Williamson, Gavin Williams, Hayden Wisniewski, Peyton Battenfield, Louis Varwin, Seth Johnson. Yeah, Gavin, like Gavin Williams is, is interesting to me, even outside of fantasy, because just with what Cleveland's been able to do with pitchers who, who don't have great stuff, I'm really excited to see what they do with pitchers who have outlier stuff. He, he has insane stuff across the board and looked really good as a starter during his last year with ECU. So I, I think that's a fantastic player organization mix. And I guess my last question for you guys is how much do you factor the organization these players are with when you're drafting them? Is, is that a, a heavy factor or is it more of a tiebreaker when you're debating prospects? Because it, it seems like people certainly should feel more comfortable taking a Dodgers or a Rays prospect versus another organization that just doesn't have their track record. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it factors in to a degree, um, you know, with, with who the player is and kind of like, all right, I think they can get something out of it. Like, that's kind of what I did with, with Helio Ramos. Um, I took Helio Ramos um, because the shine is off a little bit. I think that people have sort of moved too far in the other direction where maybe he was overrated the last couple of years. He's now almost underrated. And I look at what San Francisco has done with a lot of hitters, even at the veteran major league hitters <laughs> at the major league level and developing their ability to hit not just fastballs, but also off speed and some of the training. And I was interested in just kind of like, you know what? Um, I buy into San Francisco's training. I've heard good things. We've gotten some good reports in the scout notes still. Um, so I, you know, I decided to sort of take a chance there mostly because he was a, a San Francisco prospect and I felt like the, the value was really good. So for sure. And I took a couple of Atlanta pitchers, a couple of Braves pitchers, because I think that Atlanta over the last couple of years, has done a better job of identifying um, good college arms and then developing those arms into something once they're in the system. Um, Elder is a college arm. I know Freddie Tarnock is not, but um, Tarnock might have some of the best stuff, if not the best stuff in the Brave system. Um, so I was just, you know, looking at some guys there where I was like, hey, I think, you know, the organization has done a good, has had a recent good track record. Um, and maybe these guys are going a little bit undervalued because people haven't caught up that, Hey, the Braves have taken a step forward with player development. So it definitely does, but I think it's like how you attack it. Everybody knows the Rays. Everybody knows that the Dodgers are really smart. Um, but maybe it's, you know, identifying particular types of players that like, Hey, uh, you know, the Royals have done a really good job with this type of player that has this issue, you know, look at the hit tool development for Melendez or Prado. I think some of those things factor in too. So it does factor into my, into my mindset and sort of how I break down players, but I do try to not get too caught up in it. Um, it it's definitely a tiebreaker for me. I took a pair of guardians pitchers, uh, Battenfield and Williams, a Dodgers pitcher and a Rays pitcher. So <laughs> I'm definitely looking for that, um, that uh, organization accreditation. <laughs> Cleveland now with Battenfield. Battenfield, yep. I mean, from Rays to Guardians, you can't you can't beat that. Exactly. <laughs> we want to talk about picks we regret, ones we ones we regretted instantly. Yeah, well, that yeah, that, that could be a fun one. 
let's uh let's go there carlos is there any picks that you instantly regretted and why <laughs> well yeah i think <laughs> whit merrifield was that but you guys have talked me into it being like a solid pick so i, I think one of my hesitations with wit was that I, I really wanted to steer young because i was taking a lot of prospects and then i got into a, a range in that fifth round in that sixth round with jt romuto and whit merrifield where i just felt like for the positional scarcity I took them and and I don't know that their age necessarily meshes with, with my timeline of, of the kind of core of the team that I have. It's not a huge issue. I can trade those guys um, into more youth in the future. I think the other one that I probably regretted. Um, I mean, Whit Merrifield was, was the pig. There's no other one that jumps out to me outside of maybe just not taking a pitcher sooner, a major league pitcher, within the top 10, I, I was pretty stubborn about going hitters only for the first like top 10 rounds. And maybe that's an area where I, I see people who I know are good in this fantasy space, really targeting these pitchers. And maybe I should have pivoted and not just hard stuck to my strategy entering. And I think it was also a little bit of competition between me and Josh Norris of who was going to take uh, a pitcher, their first pitcher latest in the draft. So maybe just that in general, uh, in addition to the Whit Merrifield pick would be the two regrets or at least questions that I have about my class right now or my, my team. Can I throw out the one that I would have picked for your team? Yeah, do it. I can. Uh, Ranger oh, Suarez. He yeah. had a really good year, but I thought taking him inside the top 200 where there were some other pitchers still available. Mm -hmm. I thought that you had panicked a little too much on like when you had pitchers because oh, I, I like Patino, Savali. So who are some like of the pitchers? All those guys could outproduce Suarez this year, and I don't think it would be a huge shock. Yeah. So who I, I took Ranger Suarez in the 13th round at 199 overall. And I definitely was really stressing about my pitching. I felt like I needed to get just very consistent starters who I knew were going to take innings. Who were some pitchers who you thought were still on the board there that you would have taken instead? Like I, I really didn't want any part of a Kershaw. I waited on an old guy like um, Adam Wainwright. I got him in the 19th. I felt okay with that value given the age. Um, but yeah, who, who are some pitchers that you think would have made more sense for me there? I, I, I think what you were looking for, like I would have preferred Urquidy. I would have preferred Gray. Mm -hmm. I would have even preferred Casey Mize, which I think is probably going to be pretty similar yeah. um, to what you're going to get. And you know, he probably has a longer leash as well. Um, Joe Ryan. You know, I think it probably produced mm -hmm. fairly similar numbers. Um, and there were some, and there were some other guys that, you know, probably went a few rounds after that, but I know, I know you were in a position where. I know was age was also a the board, the numbers were good. Yeah. And uh, a year from now, we may look back on this and be like, Jeff, that was a really stupid comment for <laughs> real. And he got a ton of quality starts and we yeah. saw him, you know, replicate what he did in, you know, 2021. Um, I don't know. I, he's a guy that I've avoided in like all formats this year. Mm -hmm. So that was the one that kind of stuck out for me. Okay. But Matt, were there any picks that you, that you regretted that you made? Um, I think Alejandro Kirk could be regrettable. I think you have to view it in relation to who else yeah. was available. I mean, Christian Vasquez was my second choice there. I don't regret it in that sense. Um, I don't think I necessarily did a great job filling out the back of my pitching staff. You know, I, I would view some of these guys as maybe 30% chances to, to be on my roster all year. Uh, I'm talking about guys like Carlos Carrasco, Taiwan Walker, Domingo Herman, Dakota Hudson. You know, and then I, I didn't know quite what to do with closers, but I have a lot of confidence in the skill level of Ryan Presley and Kenley Jansen. 
um, despite what what Eno has said about uh, Jansen's stuff backing up late <laughs> last year. But regardless, I, I think those guys are good to have. If you don't feel good about your starter matchups for a week, you can just plug those closers in and feel confident yep. with them. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that um, with a guy like Jansen, he's not going to sign anywhere unless he's the guy. Like, yeah. he's not going to go to the Yankees to cover the seventh inning, no matter how much money they spend on him. Like, he's a guy that's going to want to go out, want to get his saves. Um, Eventually, to, to the Marlins or Rangers, too. Like, really nice parks. So, I, I like that, Those too. would be really nice parks. And, honestly, the Rangers are building something. So, if they can, you know, fill up the rest of that lineup and, and Josh Young can ever get fully healthy, um, <laughs> that's probably a big one. And I already mentioned what Miley's favorite pick was, but it was Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. I was looking at it like what the value was, the name value was there. And I was kind of like, you know what? I can't let him go any further. Even if I get, he's only what, 32, 33. Even if I get two decent years out of Kershaw, when he pitches, he's still relatively valuable. Then I kind of looked back on it and I was like, I could have gone with a hitter there. I could have gone with a better prospect that maybe would have been a better trade chip. Yeah. to potentially acquire another starter that was better than Clayton Kershaw. So I, I thought, I thought I, I leaned a little bit too hard into my strategy there. And the one thing I'm that I think about that pick for you is that that was your sixth pitcher taken. So I feel like you were in a spot where you had the, the flexibility and you had already built up such a strong core of pitchers that you can take mm -hmm. on the risk of Kershaw a little bit better. Like for me, Clayton Kershaw was just not an option for my pitchers yeah. just because I, I didn't have any, in my rotation. So I feel like for your team, that pick isn't quite as bad as maybe you think it is just from my perspective, looking at it and, and, yeah. and maybe what good is my opinion on this. But I think <laughs> that you did a good job creating some like strong foundation to take on risks like a Kershaw and, and, and maybe you, you get the reward of that. And I knew that I wasn't going to go back to pitcher for several rounds and I didn't take another pitcher until the 20th when I took Brady singer. Um, and that, and those picks like singer, Tyon, Brash, Keller, Dunning, James Caprillian. Those are really just to backfill my bench and give me some more starter depth, you know, because I was I was happy with what I had up front. I didn't love the Miles Straw pick either. He's a player that I like never draft in fantasy, even in Roto, where he's super valuable. Um, but the point, the point totals, the way the projections were playing out, it was like, well, he's a starting outfielder and there's some opportunity here. And at worst, maybe I replace him. I got like Tommy Pham on the bench and a couple other outfielders. So I have depth there that I'm not too, too concerned about it. But it was one of those picks that I was like, this is definitely not one of my typical guys. Like, you know, one of those guys I like never leave the draft with. If I have 20 teams, like this would be the only team where I probably roster Miles Straw. So and those were a couple. Any other sort of uh, overarching, far-reaching things that you came away with, Carlos or Matt, um, jumping into the points league format before we wrap the show up? Yeah, I think my takeaway is that I got a lot of learning to do talking to you guys here. Uh, I think for me, just figuring out how to best manage the team throughout the year and being really active on adding and dropping, because I think in at least the fantasy football leagues that I'm in, the min-maxing of your lineup is not as much of an issue compared to I, like I'm in a dynasty fo football league, but that doesn't even come close to the prospect evaluation that you're doing on a dynasty baseball team. So I think figuring out the best ways to min max a lineup and, and create value and address needs throughout the season is going to be the biggest thing that I'm trying to just learn in general from this league. I think for me, a, a lot of times I'll take a player because I believe in the player's talent and I want that player to kind of matriculate up into my team. Whereas I need to be more, more aggressive in just making transactions and trading and flipping um, because I know you guys both do that and you, you, 
you make a, a point to do that, to add value to your team. So trying to figure out how, how best to just actively manage my team while getting a better feel for this, this system and just playing with really good fantasy baseball players is, is going to be my biggest takeaway. Hopefully, if not, maybe I'll just be a bad fantasy player and can watch you guys. You know what, man, uh, you're, you're open to ideas. And the most important thing is, is have fun. I always say that, you know, and uh, I think people get so caught up in like the competitiveness of it and forget that, Hey, you want to have guys in your team that you want to roster that. you yeah, want to I was about to say that the one thing that, that I really love is, is I love J rod as a, a player and a prospect, and I'm just very happy to have him on my team. So even if my team is not good, I have J rod and can always feel comfortable with that. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> so Matt, what, what's, what's sort of your takeaways jumping in your, your experienced player, you've played in a bunch of different formats. You went into this new format, you walk away from the draft. What are your takeaways? Um, I'm going to be curious to learn how the, the roster works with such a short bench. You know, we have only four bench spots. So you have to pretty much have productive major league players if they're major league only. So that's going to be a learning curve for me is just figuring out how to make the best use of the bench. Agree. And I think there's going to be some, some rigid elements when the season, you know, when the season ends and guys are past their limits and you're going to have to make decisions on, do I keep this young player and this prospect that, you know, past his limits, do I throw him back into the pool? And yep. uh, you know, what do we do there? Because um, that's going to be a constant sort of churning situation between <laughs> your minors and your majors, which gives some value to guys that are a few years away. Cause you know, you're going to uh -huh. be able to hold on to them for a few years. <laughs> And they're not going to force you into tough roster decisions, you know? <laughs> that is one reason I did not feel too bad about taking three DSL players. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think you're right. I yeah. grabbed a few at the end. Um, but at the end, you know, to wrap things up here, I think, you know, this was a, a great experience with a, a lot of different types of players, people that had a lot of experience, readers, writers, folks that are getting into it. And uh, I hope we were able to, to give you three different perspectives on this league and you know, some perspective on um, what's out there when you're jumping in dynasty leagues. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, Carlos and Matt, for joining me. And everyone out there, remember, most important lesson, have some fun.